Hey, everybody. Welcome into this week's episode of Tuesdays Are For Talking. I'm your host, Nathan Brown. This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with Mosaic member Mike Yates. Mike is one of our worship leaders here. You may have experienced his ministry through poetry and spoken word as well. In the marketplace, Mike is an educator and innovator. He's a public speaker, having been featured in not one, but two TED Talks. He's also a published writer, having articles written in Blavity, Mogul Media, Forbes, and more. Mike and I cover a wide array of subjects today. Today. It's an interesting podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Here we go. Mike, man, I've been looking forward to this for a while. We actually tried to have you on a previous episode when we were talking about business in the COVID era. And I know we had some technical difficulties that day and just were not able to get you involved in that particular podcast, which was a cry and shame. But I'm super glad, man, that we were able to get you back around today just to have a conversation with you. So obviously we've introduced you here just a little bit, but I'd love for you just to introduce yourself to the podcast audience. Well, first, glad to be here. So my name is Mike. I work in education at a school called Alpha, where I created the public speaking program there. And I do a bunch of other things, but I get to work with students. I get to work with technology. And I love that. I've I've grown a lot there. I also do some education consulting with different education organizations. I am talking with organizations like Teach for America and a blog called Let Grow and Moral Courage University, things like that. I do public speaking coaching. I have a wife and four kids, which keep me busy, and that's my most important job. Yeah, that's that's about it. That's me. How, how long have you and your wife been married? Six years. Six years and four kids. I admire your yes. bravery, but question your judgment, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I do too. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. How did you guys meet? We actually met at the Every Nation School of Ministry. Our story of meeting was actually like a movie. I had gotten saved, and then I went to what used to be called Campus Harvest, what is now ENC Conference. And I also do poetry, which a lot of people at the church know. And uh, I was doing poetry at, at this conference, so I was really excited about that. And I, I, I did this poem on stage, and I did not know this until later, but my wife was there. And she said, mm, I'm going to marry that guy. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. And then she later in the conference, the next day, she was on stage giving her testimony. And I was sitting next to my friend Shadrick Bell. And I literally looked up at the sky and was like, God, what do I have to do to get a girl like that? And God said, follow me. So it's like, all right, great. I'm all in on this like Jesus thing. You may want to pause and give some people an opportunity just to write that down. That's pretty good advice right there. <laughs> right. Yeah. So following God took me to a mission trip where I went to Columbia um, through every nation. And almost everybody from the trip was from Nashville. And they kept telling me, you have to get to Nashville. You have to get to Nashville. So it's like, okay. So I went to Nashville to visit the school of ministry with two friends of mine. And that same girl was there, but I didn't recognize her because her hair was different. And I was like, man, that. That girl is, she is next level fineness. And, you know, we, we talked and, and um, we were actually all like out eating at one point and people started talking about the conference from this year. And she, at one point is like, oh my gosh, do you guys remember the poet? Like that guy was so good. I, if I ever see that, guy, I'm going to marry that guy. And this is right in front of you? Right in front of me. I'm yes. sitting at the table and I'm like, 
oh my gosh. And I, I'm like, I don't know what this, I'm not saying anything. And my friend was like, well, your husband's right here. Then, Come on, good friend. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. So then the rest, the rest is kind of history like actually from there. So yeah, we met at the Every Nation School of Ministry. That is amazing. I, I knew that you guys had met at the School of Ministry. I did not know that whole story. I don't think yeah. so that's, that is pretty incredible. So where did life take you from there? So you know, I, I did campus ministry for a little bit, and we actually, we, we got engaged, and then we got pregnant before we got married. And we had this really interesting opportunity in front of us that was led by our pastor at the time from San Marcos, Peter Dusan, where we got to really experience, like, what is what does God's grace actually mean? Like, what is it, you know, in campus ministry, you have you have ministry partners that help financially to to send you to the campus. And all of my partners said, hey, we're with you. Like, we're not going anywhere. Like, you're called to this. None of this changes. It just means that you're called to this with a baby. And and I was I was super encouraged by that. Um, super blessed that God, that God stood by us and that he is that kind of that he's that kind of God. When our child was born, our first son, he actually was born at 25 weeks. So he was a what you call a micro preemie. Mm. He was one pound and ten ounces, and ended up being in the NICU for six months. I kept hearing God tell me there there's something else that I have for you. And the day that I that I called Peter to tell him, like, hey, I think I'm going to move on from campus ministry, was also the day that he was like, hey, I think God has something else for you. So it was like like big time confirmation, and I could clearly see God was moving in my life. And then another member of a church in San Marcos, but now is a member of the Mosaic family, Kristen Duran, came to visit us in the hospital and basically teed up my first job in education. And I, I fell in love with it. God told me, this is what I have for you. This is where I have you. And uh, I have not stopped since. Um, we've not stopped living in Austin and being a part of Mosaic since then. Man, that's quite a story. God's grace is so good. And that's really encouraging to me that people stood by you. It's interesting how the church sort of picks and chooses what sins and mistakes that they want to capitalize on. And it's not to say that God's grace is there to condone sin, but it's the pathway back to righteousness. Uh, the church is so good at like shooting its wounded, you know, or when people are bleeding, they don't know what to do. So they kick them out thinking, I don't know what they think. Like maybe they're going to just go fix themselves or something. But to have people that stand by you when when things don't go as planned, when you don't choose God's best, and they but they walk with you through that, that is so powerful. And I'm encouraged that that's the experience you had because, dare I say, it's it's a unique experience in yeah, the church. It is. It was. We, we were fully aware of that too. So you guys transitioned out of campus ministry and you transitioned into education all the while. You've still been involved in ministry, obviously with poetry and with with leading worship in the local church. But what was education like for you? Did you go into, was it Christian education? Was it secular education? What did you dip your toe into first as you started to move in that direction? Yeah, I started at a Christian private school here in Austin. And it was not only a Christian private school, it was a classical school, which was very interesting for me because I, I grew up hating school. I thought, based on the experiences that I had and the things that I thought about, I, my belief was that school was bad and that most teachers were not as good as they said they were. And I mean good as in like intention and talent. My mother was a teacher growing up. So I also felt like she was a very good teacher. 
but she would never let me be in her class. So I was I was always kind of salty about that because I felt like I had to take classes from teachers that just weren't as good. So mm. I went into teaching. Basically, I went into the first job that I was offered, and I actually never wanted to be a teacher. My mom always told me, don't be a teacher because it don't pay enough. So I was like, <laughs> okay. Um, and when Kristen actually offered me, she, she said, hey, like the school is looking for a speech teacher and a speech coach, and you do those things. I did speech and debate in college and high school, and I said, oh, yeah, okay, fine. You know, I'm not going to turn down a job, so I'll send my resume in. And I'll never forget, I sent this very arrogant email that was like, hey, I hear you have an opening at your school. And I don't even remember the things that I listed, but I was like, I will only come to your school if you have these things. And they were like, the reply was like, that's exactly what we're offering, those five things. That's crazy. Yeah, I was like, okay, I guess this is some sort of sign from God. So I went and I I spent a good year there, but I learned a lot about what I believed about education and what I wanted to do in education in that one year, and that was the only year that I that I was there. Wow, so you you learned a lot there. You you've moved on now into different educational spaces and you got like an entrepreneurial edge to you. Talk to us about what it looked like for you to start to to get involved in some other things at the same time as you're pursuing this new career in education. So I've always had this internal sense of hustle in, inside of me and 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 that was because when I was when I was young, my mom actually used to tell me things like, Hey, like the Bible says if a man don't work, a man don't eat. Okay. And I was like, doesn't it really say that, mom? And right, like, but she used to, and my mom used to tell me, like, hardcore, she's like, there is nothing good about a lazy man. And I was like, <laughs> oh, man, all these things. So I heard this, like, like my whole life. And one day, I, I'll never forget, I came home and my mom looks at me and says, hey, what are you thinking about doing for college? I was like 13. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And she goes, oh, I'm just letting you know, like, I can't pay for you to go to college. So you got to find a way. <laughs> but it's not an option for you to not go. And so I I just from then on, I just started start. I sort of started looking for ways to make money. I started looking for ways to like start my own business. I, I started a candy business uh, selling candy out of my locker. And then I, I went from candy to burnt CDs like we had a CD burner at our house. So I was like on LimeWire and BearShare. I was like burning mixtapes and selling them. And then I convinced two of my friends, Kimeth and John, I convinced them to be to be my employees. And and I had a contract and every CD that they sold, I got 60%. <laughs> and it was it was it was crazy. I had so I had this business going. I, I eventually started selling sneakers. At one point I came home with money and my mom was like, what are you doing? Are you selling drugs? And I was like, no, no, no. The exact opposite. I'm selling sneakers, candy, and CDs. And she was <laughs> yes. like, I guess that's okay, right? So that that like has followed me my whole life. And because I, I didn't make very much money as a teacher, I always looked for new ways to make money. And you know, I, I bounced around in my first four years of teaching. I never stayed at the same school for more than one year. I never taught the same subject for more than one year because I was dissatisfied with each model, public, private, charter. Mm. I was dissatisfied with the income that you can make. So I was always writing on the side. I was always thinking of new ideas on the side. And eventually, when I got to the school where I am now, which is called Alpha, Alpha is the, it is the intersection between entrepreneurship, education, and technology. 
Mm. The school is is started by an entrepreneur. Our funding structure is affiliated with a technology company, like a software company, and we are a school. My world sort of opened up, and all of a sudden, I saw that that all of these experiences in my life were not random occurrences, but it was like it was preparing me for something, and it was this moment. Yeah, it's it's like the perfect place for me. That's awesome. You've done a couple of TED Talks now, which I find fascinating. I, I love TED Talks, but you've, you've done a couple of them. And I remember watching one that I, that I found really fascinating. I wasn't the target audience for this TED Talk, but you were speaking to African-American youth and you had a really important message for them. You had some great wisdom and some great points. I wonder if you would just be willing to sort of take us through some of that. So my first TED Talk is, is about the, the culture of power. And the culture of power is this idea that there is a there is a culture that holds the power in every society. And that culture has unspoken and unwritten rules as to how to access that power. This is what we call white privilege in America, right? Like there are unspoken rules. There's an unspoken set of norms that actively benefit white people. And there are ways that white people have learned to act and also act unconsciously that allows them to tap into that power, specifically white white males. And so I, I learned this concept from the organization that I was certified through, which is an alternative certification program called the New Teacher Project. And they were teaching us this concept like it was for adults, saying like, be aware that this exists. And I thought, there's no way this should be the end of this lesson, right? Like, you're just going to tell students, hey, just so you know, there are power structures that exist. See you later. No, no, no. So it's like, I, I want to ch- turn this on his head. Wow. Every year that I've, that I've taught, it's one of the first things that I do with students. And I, I actually show them how the existence of a power structure in the United States exists both with the dominant culture and with cultures that are not dominant. So you, you as a person of color, you as a, a black person, um, you as a Latino, you, you, you can claim power over certain aspects of your identity the things that make up your identity, right? So for example, in the United States, I speak English. And that gives me an advantage over people that don't speak English, not just in the United States, but in the world, Hmm. right? Uh, I was born here. I'm a citizen. Whether I like that or not, whether some people like that or not, it doesn't matter. I am a citizen at the end of the day, and I am legally entitled to specific things because I am a citizen. While I may not do this every time I'm pulled over, if I get pulled over, I can exercise my fourth, fifth, sixth, and eighth amendment rights, right? Which protects me from an unlawful search and seizure. It allows me to speak to a lawyer and it technically protects me from police brutality. I, I should be able to exercise those rights. And this is why like the Black Lives Matter protest is happening, is why all these protests are happening across the country is because even though you are a member of a disenfranchised group as a black person, you still are an American citizen, which means that you should be entitled to a specific set of power. So I taught students to do this by using what's called the invisible knapsack. I think Nina mentioned Peggy McIntosh on the last mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. This is also Peggy McIntosh. So Peggy's doubling up on the on, on this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, she, she came up with the invisible knapsack. And basically what you do is for student, you go through all of the aspects of your identity right? Like what's your race? Where were you born? What did your parents go to college? Where do you live? Right. And you list every single positive identity that you have. And I've, I've done this with, I've done this with kids who don't have running water in their house. I've done it with the most, some of the most affluent kids in the city of Austin. And no matter who you are, or what your background is at the end of that exercise, which takes 30 minutes, their backpack is full. Hmm. 
And I've seen like sixth graders walk out of that and tuck that thing into their backpack or their pocket. I had a kid who carried it everywhere with him wow. because his home life was so bad that he he told me he would pull out that that piece of paper and he would just read them out loud like they were affirmations. Wow. Right. And, and so for me, what I found was the biblical approach to this is that God has uniquely designed every single person, even people who are disenfranchised. And he has given us gifts and talents, and he's given us positioning, and he's put people in our life that actually give us some um, advantage and power. And and it's it's I think it's only through focusing on that can a student go from the low expectations that a teacher may have of them to succeeding in school or or superseding those expectations. I mean, that, that was my story as a student. That's so empowering to think about, especially for the people that you were talking to. Young people have a lot thrown at them and they're they're offered superfluous pie in the sky stuff. And then at the same time, they're told all the things they can't be. But as you start talking about not necessarily what you can be and what you can't be, but like who you are and what's available to you. Right. That's, that's so practical, man. That's really great. When you get into those spaces, so you talked a little bit about being an American citizen. That's a part of who you are. Of course, yep. we've heard about your Christian faith. That's who you are. You're also a black man in America. That's who you are. And you and I have talked a little bit about the triple consciousness that you that you live in. And I know you're, you're working on some stuff as it relates to that idea. But this idea of triple consciousness is really fascinating to, to me. Would you talk through what that is a little bit for, for those of us who may not be aware? Yes, yes. So a, a lot of Americans experience this, but they don't have a word for it. So W.E.B. Du Bois, which is, um, he's a very, very important figure in, in Black culture and civil rights history and Black history. He's the first Black person to graduate from an all-white university. He's also a sociologist, and he coined the phrase double consciousness to describe the unique experience of being distinctly Black, but also being told that you're American. And so I have felt like the the more I've tried to ground myself in my faith, and my wife, Alex, and I talk about this quite a bit. There is a, a triple consciousness that you will experience when you become a Christian. And, and when I say become a Christian, when you develop a relationship with Jesus and you are unwilling to move off of some of the, the, the biblical principles that you know of, there is a triple consciousness that you experience. And that is a collision between your Black identity, your American identity, and your, your identity as a Christian. So for me, that breaks down in a couple different ways. So with my blackness, my, my father is a member of the Nation of Islam. And the Nation of Islam, do not be confused, they, they, they are not the same as saying like a Sunni or Shiite Muslim. The Nation of Islam is technically, according to the FBI, a black separatist group that they track alongside the KKK. It is not to say that the Nation of Islam does the same things as the KKK, but it's just the, it's the sort of classification of them and, and how they're viewed by the government. The Nation of Islam was a natural response to oppression, segregation, and mistreatment of Black people by the government during the Black Power Movement. It's, it's a natural consequence. They also believe that white people come from the devil. Ironically, their founder, Fard Muhammad, is half white, which nobody can explain to me. Don't look <laughs> behind the curtain. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um but they believe that. And so I, I, I've heard those things growing up, right? And and I, I've had experiences where I, where I would hear that and I'd say, well, that's not true. That's clearly not true. When I was young, I had this conversation with my with my dad and my uncle. And I was like, I was like, look, that's like impossible. Because like, if you believe in the devil at all, the devil's not even human. <laughs> He's an angel. 
And so, so that means that white people are just fallen angels. And they were like, no, no, that's not what the Bible says. So, <laughs> so I've had these, these, these talks, but that my, my, my blackness has always been rooted in the far end of the radical spectrum. I used to be very brash and bold about the idea that things like integration were a bad thing. Now, you know, obviously, like, I believe integration is a good thing, but it had some very negative consequences. So I, I believed these very, very radical parts of my Blackness. And actually, the person that, it, that, that God has sent to me that has pulled me out of most of that and towards my Christian identity is my wife. Four years ago, she came to me and said, you need to submit your Blackness to Jesus. Whoa. I was so offended. <laughs> I was like, yeah, what are you talking about? But she she's right. And and that th- part of this tussle is me struggling to submit my blackness to Jesus in moments where it hurts. Mm. Right? Like like when when George Floyd when I watched his murder on tape, when I watched Ahmaud Aubrey, regardless of if he was jogging or not. He if, was he looking at houses, was he jogging? What whatever, he was murdered, right? I right. I watched that literally whatever. Yeah. Like when I watch police beating up people for no reason, I have this tendency to want to cling to my blackness. And in those moments, I know, especially now, I know that I should be submitting that part of myself, all of myself, just like everything else to Jesus. But but because I am a sinful human being, I don't want to. And 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 I can it can cause me to spiral in some negative places. Then you throw on top of that the fact that I am angry at America right now. I I am angry at the police. Yes, I know that they're a very good police. I have had a run-in, I've had bad run-ins with police. I've had great run-ins with police. Quick story: I, I was in San Marcos when Alex and I lived there, my wife and I lived there. My license had expired because I had not paid a parking ticket or something like that. It was suspended. And a cop pulled me over because I had a busted taillight. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I'm like I'm nervous, throat's dry, everything. And um, he asked me for my license and I gave him the license and he didn't even run it. He just looked at it and said, hey man, you got to get your taillight fixed. Like, see ya. And while that doesn't necessarily qualify as like a good and benevolent cop, it was something that like reversed my expectation in the moment. And so I know that exists, but I am still angry at America. I am still angry at the police. I am angry at 400 years of oppression, right? I, I, I am angry that I still to this day, like I, the other day I went to a gas station and I forced myself to put my hands in my pocket as this like this very subtle form of resistance. And, and I didn't even make it through the whole trip. Right. Like, like that, that, that makes me upset. But at the end of the day, because I believe in Jesus and because I believe that Jesus is literally the answer to everything, I also have to, to wrestle with the idea that, that all of this will be reconciled to Christ and that God is in all of this at some point. He's, he's in all of this. Like, and and I have to be okay with that. And it's a really, really hard place to be, but that's, Essentially, triple consciousness, it's just the it's the collision of all of those identities, Black American and Christianity. It's like unmissable for you that other people interact with you first as a black male before right. anything else. Right. And and so whether you want to perceive yourself or feel your own consciousness first as a black male or not, that is how the world interacts with you. Am I right about this? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason why I think during times like this, it becomes such a struggle is because everywhere I look, 
people are very well-meaning, right? Like recently on LinkedIn, which I spent a lot of time there, there was this challenge called, it was like the do the right thing challenge or something like that. I forget what it was, but it was basically all these white influencers that were like, hey, I'm going to pick three lucky black college students and professionals and I'm going to mentor them because this is how I give back. I was like, what? What? I mean, like, what? It doesn't feel good even to hear you say that. I'm like, yeah. Nah. And this was a situation where this was about 10 people and sort of everybody, black, white, other races, everybody felt the same way that you just described, except for them. Like they, for some reason, couldn't see it. But then it's it's other stuff. Like I had a uh, this guy reached out to me and was like, hey, um, I'm looking to get more black marketing students in my online marketing course. Do you know anybody? And, my, you know, my first question is like, well, dude, don't you know anybody? <laughs> right? like, um, but yeah, like I, I am everywhere I go, like my, my blackness is on display and it's something that I can't hide. And I'm, unfortunately, until you start, until you talk to a person, most of the time, the most important identity, which is a son of God, that's the one that, that takes the, the, the most time, right? Like in a, in a 10 minute reaction, it's, it's normally, you know, maybe minute five or six that, mm. but it's immediately, oh, that's a black guy. And you assume you're American. Wow. Yeah, there's this conversation going around right now. When I hear people talk about the racial injustices that we're seeing right now. I was thinking to myself, like, this is this is not now. It's not new. Right. I mean, it's present in that it hasn't gone away. But one of the conversations that's taking place even in the white world, which I'm sure has been taking place in the black world for a very long time, is this conversation about how many teachers did you have growing up that were not white? It's like yeah. question 1A, question 1B, like how many teachers did you have that were black? Mm-hmm. And my wife and I were having this conversation. She just asked me. She's like, well, well, well what about you? You know, and, and as I sit, sit there and try to think back through it, I can't remember all of my teachers, you know, but I don't recall any that were black. I did have a, a, a black man that was a vice principal in my high school. And he's a pretty awesome guy. I've run into him a few times as an adult, played some racquetball with him and nice. some things like that. And he, he was great. But Mike, when, you, when you're moving into the space of education that is firmly dominated by whiteness and by white people, mm-hmm. what does that do to the triple consciousness that you experience when you're coming in and you're supposed to be authoritative and you're supposed to be teaching people and yet you look around and you see yourself grossly underrepresented in the space that you work? Yeah, that's a that's something that I think about a lot. And and so for me, I had six black teachers growing up, which is a lot compared to most people. I don't remember all of their names, but I I saw one of them. My mom recently got married and I saw one of them there. And it was just so good to talk to her cuz I she taught me in like the 7th grade and was the first teacher to ever say to me, "You need to join a speech team." And at the time I blew her off. I was like, come on, Miss Ford, I'm going to the NBA. And she was like, okay, like maybe, but I know your parents and you should join the speech team. Because <laughs> she knew I wasn't going to be that tall. Uh, but, <laughs> um, I mean, I, 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 had, I had great interactions and I still have contact with a lot of them. I, my ninth grade teacher, Mr. Clarity, was incredible. I had a 10th grade teacher. He was also a basketball coach, Mr. Lee. He taught me to dance salsa, which is part of the story of how, how I got my wife. Right um, now, I'm wishing this was a video <laughs> podcast. I mean, right now, I'm wishing. Yeah. I want to see that. Okay, I'm sorry. Keep going. The next marriage event, we should do a salsa night. I'll show yes. you. Yes. Um, You're leading it. 
Okay, I'm I'm down. I I actually started a Latin dance club called Latin Motion, and we won four Latin ballroom dancing competitions. Come on, and man! The, most of the kids were black, and so was the teacher. He's a black man, and so I, I'll never forget. I wanted to impress this girl, and I showed up at Mr. Lee's room, and I was like, "Hey, I heard this rumor that you dance salsa," and he's like, "Okay, yeah, that might be true." And I was like, "Teach me everything you know." So he like assembled six other kids and we started learning. So it was great. And so I feel very, you know, blessed to have that. But but then when I got into education and I left Houston, you know, Houston will trick you because it's one of the most diverse cities on planet Earth. And then I moved to San Marcos, Austin, which is not very diverse. And I had students my first year of teaching that they said to me, they were like, you're the first black teacher I've ever had. I had a student once that said, you're the first black person I've ever spoken to. And I don't know this for sure with my current school, but for some of the kids, that that may be the case. And, and so when I walk into education, it is a very white dominated space. And there is a, a thing in me that desires to, to, to build a network of schools that are owned and operated by Black people, where, you know, generally anybody can come, but, but we're just like the staff is just as diverse as you could make it. But that feels more like a dream than reality to me very often because it exists in very small pockets in the country. But everywhere you look in education, it's a, it's a white dominated space. And so for me, what I've done in my current position to, to try to deal with that is, is I mean, not everyone, but I, I, my Black friends that I think are talented, I refer them over and over, right? Like over and over. And it's not like I'm exclusive. I'm not saying like, oh, I'm only referring Black. I refer... I refer any anybody who I think is talented, but when they ask me, like, can you think of a person that would do this? I intentionally think about like the diversity of the organization. I think, okay, like this person is from the Dominican Republic and would be an inter- interesting story to have with kids. Also, super talented. Also, belongs in the organization, right? And so, I I think that's what diversity in the workplace actually looks like. Is, is being intentional. So that's what I try to do to, to help my triple consciousness at work. You know, there's this whole concept out there of being colorblind, which nobody really is. Right. Um, even though people may say that's what they are or they strive to be. And I, you know, I sort of understand the seedling of the idea is to treat everyone the same irrespective of the color of their skin. Okay, fine. Yeah. Right. Like we all agree that would be an ideal, but to not see color is actually not an ideal. And w- whether we like it or not, like the world we live in functions within the construct of race and, and of skin color. And so I'm, I actually love what you're doing. And as a white person, when you said that, there was nothing inside of me that was like, but what about the white guys? Right. They're smart too, Mike. They have things there's to of offer. There's, yeah. there's plenty of them. But w- what what's what I find in like the circles that, that I have been in, and frankly, like what I try to do something about now, is it, it's not that I want my environments to be diverse just because I like to look at people with different skin colors. I mean, that's cool. We like that you know and people come to mosaic church like oh i like this place because there's a lot of different people here what i actually like is what those different people bring to the table yeah and so when we find an underrepresented group they may be underrepresented because the world has put them in a box because the color of their skin what we actually need is what comes with 
their skin color, what comes mm-hmm. with their lived experience, what comes with the way that they've been forced to process the world and process life, what comes yeah. with that skin color is the obstacles they've had to overcome and the tenacity they've had to develop and the creativity that they have had to leverage to yep. to to accomplish something in a different way from someone else. So, I, man, I love that you're doing that. So one of my favorite things, obviously, part of this podcast is to just to get to know some of the people in Mosaic, knowing that that you have all of this background that you do. And as much as I love Mike Yates, the entrepreneur, and as much as I appreciate Mike Yates, the educator, and as much as I have admiration for Mike Yates, the public speaker, the Mike Yates that that speaks the most to me is Mike Yates, the worship leader, who doesn't leave all that stuff behind, but brings all that with you into the presence of God as you pour out your praise to him and bring other people along with you. Mike, when you come into that space with all of the things that you carry in your own heart, in your own mind, what does it look like for you to bring all of that and lay it at the feet of Jesus and tell him who he is, that he's still worthy, that he's still the greatest thing, and that all this cool stuff that you're doing belongs to him? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's it. I can get sidetracked. And I think a lot of people that like, if you want to make any sort of change in the world, you can get sidetracked into believing that it's you really easily. And for me, worship is one of the things that I like. I mean this like physically as well. Like I can't do it without God, right? Like it's, it is something that I'm, I'm not good enough to do it in autopilot, right? And, and, it, it, and I lit, like I have to, to, to work at it and I, I have to spend time with God. There is, for me, I know this, there is a difference between when I'm spending time with God and when I'm not in worship like in the performance of it, right? It is it is the place that reminds me that like, just like worship is the thing you can't do without God, you just think you can do everything else without God, but you cannot. It's everything, right? It's it's my whole life will fall apart if I if I didn't have the God of the universe. And, and what's so interesting about my life is that I'm able to look back and see all of these places where he put me in a position to be where I am today, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Right. And and all all of these very like they seem very serendipitous. It's just God controlling the universe, and so that that's what I'm reminded of dur- during worship. And I'm I'm thankful to do that, and, and glad to get through it with you. Well, me too, man. Last thing I just want to ask you about because uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't during this time of COVID and really kind of going back to the podcast we originally were going to have you on. There's a lot of people who've had their employment affected. Maybe they have, you know, lost hours or they've lost contracts or maybe they've lost their jobs altogether. You know, we've certainly heard from a lot of different people that have had their economic situation impacted by COVID. Something that that you do uh, well is to to sort of leverage all the tools that are available to you to, to let people know who you are, to get your fingers, like I said before, in multiple pots, developing multiple streams of income. Mike, if, if you were just to take like five minutes and offer some advice to people who find themselves struggling right now to, to find work, maybe they've lost their job altogether. Maybe that presents a unique opportunity for them. What would you say to people right now who just need some help, man, trying to figure out what comes next? My life just got turned upside down. What do I do? Yeah, I think it's uh, there's three things that I, I tell people. All these three things come like after you pray, after you seek God. And you know the direction that you're supposed to go in. I think you should do these three things. And number one is people. You should you should reach out to people. You should talk to people, and you should figure out what contacts and connections you have 
the the reality about the job market is, is that most recruiters have never actually held the job title for which they're trying to hire. So they are not always able to accurately assess talent from an online application. So they're using programs that are they're like skimmers. They're using programs that are just scanning your documents, looking for keywords and buzzwords. And so the best way to get hired anywhere, even during this crisis, is through people. It's through a referral. It is like if you want to work at Amazon, you need to build a relationship with somebody who works at Amazon. And when it's time for you to ask them, you need to have them walk your resume into a room as opposed to just shooting out a bunch of online applications. The other thing I would say is to do things that are more human at a time when people are not. Sending a handwritten thank you card after your interview is something that most people are not doing anymore because they think, oh, that's so 1995. Yeah, it is. Because in 1995, you didn't have the experience of the internet. But that hiring manager or that CEO or that principal, when they get that handwritten note, they're going to say, oh, oh, something's different about this person. Let me go back and look into their stuff because you, you may be the only person who's done that. Don't be afraid to call as well and let them talk to you and hear you hear you speak. The second thing I would say to do um, is to use the internet. And I, when I say use it, I don't mean online applications. I mean use the internet to build what's called the personal brand. Some people don't like that term. And if you don't like the term personal brand, then just interchange it with a term that everybody likes. You're building your reputation. That's a, Everybody already has a digital footprint and a personal brand, whether you know it or not. If you've had a debate or a conversation online, you have a personal brand. And so what you should do is the things that you're like and the things that you're interested in, the things that you're passionate about, you, you should create, like you should post about those things. Wherever you spend the most time, I recommend that people get on LinkedIn because that's where the that's where the jobs are. That's where the employers are. That's where the startups are. That's where the co-founders are. But if it's Twitter, if it's Facebook, wherever, document the things that you're learning and the things that you're feeling about your career and your 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 field of choice, because it's, what's going to happen is that that stream of documentation is going to make it to a person who might say, "Ooh, you might be perfect for this position," and they only know it through the brand that you built online. So definitely tap into some people and network and your 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 brand. And the other thing that that I think you need to do in this time is is to be really, really persistent. And and I mean like almost like bad salesperson persistent. Just because <laughs> there's a lot of people that are looking for work, right? Like it's just a lot of them. And if you really want to work somewhere, then you have to show the employer there is no like everybody's desperate right now. So don't 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 be like, oh, well, if I don't have a job, I don't want to look desperate. Everybody's desperate. Right. So if you don't have a position, definitely be persistent. And and I didn't plan on saying this, but one of the things that I think that people should stop doing is that you you should stop stop discounting what I call bridge jobs. There are jobs that you should just take because it's the one that's been offered to you right in front of you and you need income where you have to put your pride aside and, and you just have to work that job until you get to your next thing. I think that's really, really important. I, I uh, used to play basketball at this gym with this dude who uh, he, he gave me this term bridge job. He's been a manager at Sprint for like six years and he's making like 80K at Sprint. And he's like, now nah, I have no reason to leave because I'm like single. I make 80K and like all my benefits are covered through Sprint. And I get free phones. So he said the term, like he was like, I was using it as a bridge job so I could get back to IT. And then I figured out, I really like talking to people instead of sitting in front of screens. 
right? So like you might find something else about yourself by taking that job that's right in front of you. So yeah, that, that's what I'd say to folks. That's really helpful advice. I, I hope that, that that will help some people out. Uh, so Mike, you're on LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to connect with you, it's just Mike Yates over on LinkedIn. And I'm sure that you'd be glad to strike up some more conversations and to, and to help some folks out. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today, man. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your investment into our church. Thank you for your investment into people. And man, thank you most of all for loving Jesus and being my friend. I love you, man. Love you, man. Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Tuesdays Are For Talking. For more information about how to get and stay connected to us, head over to mosaicchurchaustin.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We hope you'll make plans to join us next week.